0: You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds from Stokes Family Office.
1: All right, Doug and Greg Stokes of Lanyap podcast. we got a very special guest today, David Chase of Crescent City Capital. I actually met David uh, about a year ago when we were discussing the potential for Bitcoin mining, but I asked him to come on because we've had questions related to Bitcoin and an investment in other cryptocurrencies. So I thought he was the perfect person to answer questions that we or some of our listeners may have. But anyway, David, thanks for joining. And maybe we'll just kick this off and tell us about your background and what led you to the world of crypto. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate you guys inviting me
2: on. So I always think it's important to Kind of back up and talk about my early career. So in the early 2010s, 2011, I was trading with a prop shop out of Chicago, Galbra Group. I was trading FX, Foreign Exchange. And it's really where, you know, that was probably in, like I said, 2011, 2012. I got my first kind of experience in, you know, Bitcoin and learning about it. Didn't trade it until, you know, 2016. But I really got very familiar with central bank policies from kind of all over the world. You know, obviously our central bank, the Euro central bank, you know, Japan's central bank. So, you know, kind of understood, you know, where they were coming from, you know, what it took to really understand the nuances of everyday central bank policy. And then we would, you know, make trading decisions based on that. I kind of always had in the back of my head, you know, there's just, a better way, I believe there would be a better way than you know current you know, central bank policy. So I stayed with that company, Gelber Group, for a couple of years and moved into a different trading desk, which is a natural gas desk. Ultimately, wanting to move... I'm from Mississippi, ultimately wanting to move back down south. I chose New Orleans, where I had a lot of friends and family living at the time. From there, you know, this was in 2000, late 16, early 17. I was really looking for a natural gas job, kind of the de- gas and oil were kind of depressed at the time. And, you know, trading here was far more hedge-based hedging strategies than prop strategies. So ultimately I found myself trading kind of my own book. And, you know, we traders look for volatility. And so I tell people, you know, I kind of was in the right place at the right time. Early 17, I started trading. Exclusively cryptocurrency, you know, the big names at the time that were found on Coinbase, which were, I think, really, there are only about five or six Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Dash, that sort of thing. In March of that year, I started mining Ethereum, put together a few GPU rigs. Uh, I think I had eight at the time. And then really got, you know, very involved in the mining side while also trading Bitcoin. So keep in mind that Bitcoin at the time, I think, was, you know, in January of that year, it was $1,000. And, you know, Ethereum was, I think, like $30. And then by the end of that year, you know, Ethereum was $1,400 and Bitcoin was 20000 So it was, it was certainly, you know, quite the year to be involved. I'd never seen, even even with my trading, I'd never seen that kind of volatility. So I really found it fascinating and I really wanted to learn more about it. I moved into really getting a lot deeper into the mining aspect. By the end of the year, I was in two data centers in downtown New Orleans. I felt like was paying way too much on electricity, so developed my own kind of containerized data center solution and stuck it out in Norco where there was a little bit cheaper power. I wanted to focus a little bit more on the trading side. And so I got together with a partner of mine, Hunter Metcalf. You know, I, I believe that this was a very cyclical asset class. I consider cryptocurrency to be its own asset class. It's only been around now for about 13 years. And we've certainly seen it mature a lot over those 13 years. So we started Crescent City Capital at the end of 2018. We launched with the thought of this hedging vehicle for... This new asset class. What we were considering a new asset class. So we launched Crescent City Capital, made our first trades in May of 2019, and you know that's kind of our flagship fund, and we've had a good deal of success in that. With the strategy mainly being, obviously, we have hedging aspect to it, which we don't believe that you know just uh, you know an everyday Joe that wants to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase can get. But we also have some algorithmic trades that we run in that, and
1: now our volume has become mainly algorithmic trading volume. I wanted to backtrack and you mentioned two things that I thought were interesting. I think that I wanted to dive into. Number one was your work as a prop trader and working on an FX desk and understanding of US and foreign central bank policy and there had to be something different. So maybe we can at some point uh, dive into the solution that Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies provide that is opposite of maybe central bank policy and then, or centralized policy. And then you mentioned mining and I want to dive into, I'm sure people are like mining, like a coal mine. Just explain what that actually means to people. Yeah. So
2: Bitcoin and currently Ethereum until they move to proof of stake are proof of work algorithms. So it requires work to keep up the network. And think of it as this proof of work is done by what are called ASIC computers, application-specific integrated units. So they have one job. They are built to run on one algorithm. In Bitcoin's case, it's SHA-256. And they are constantly trying to solve for the next mathematical equation To achieve the new block. And so they're constantly trying to find the new block. But in the meantime, the work that they're also doing is keeping up the network. So, you know, I guess the analogy would be instead of trusting your bank to keep your ledger, you know, of your dollars that's in a US bank, it's really the network that is keeping up this public ledger. And this public ledger is available all the way back to 2008 when Bitcoin first started. And so, you ask, well, well, why would people do that? because there's got to be some kind of reward for that. You know, in the bank's case, the profitable entities, they keep up this private ledger and you trust them. Well, the trust is all given to this set of miners, in this case me, that is keeping up this public ledger in return for rewards, potential rewards. So this kind of goes back to your original question of, you know kind of the difference between central bank policy and bitcoin's algorithm. Bitcoin is a disinflationary asset right now, meaning that, There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin that are mined. I think currently there are 19 million that are in circulation. So for the next hundred years, by the year like 2140 to 2150, the 21 millionth Bitcoin will be mined. So in between that time, it's disinflationary in that every four years or roughly thereabout, the number of Bitcoin that are released on these blocks that I'm talking about mining. So You're mining for this reward. There's a new reward or a new block released about every, or found, not released, found about every 15 minutes. Currently, it's 6.25 Bitcoin that are found. Four years ago, that number was 12.5. And in four years, we're going to, a little less than that. In 2024, we're going to half again. And so, you know, the difference is, is that central bank policy is about, you know, printing new money for different economic reasons, whereas Bitcoin is more about this store of value that you know unless the code is changed and it would take a 51 percent of the total mining capacity in the world to do that to change the code in this algorithm that we know that there will only ever be 21 million bitcoin ever mined you know contrast that with how many dollars do you think are going to be in circulation you know 100 years from now hopefully answer both of those questions for you Doug
1: Yeah, it did. And so you evolved from mining to trading from an investor's perspective. What is a use case for Bitcoin other than the potential for trading profits? Why would you invest in Bitcoin or or Ethereum and maybe explain the difference between the two?
2: Okay, good question. So first, Bitcoin wasn't necessarily designed to be a store value. It was more of a payment processor is how it was designed. You would hold this money that would be, you know, over time should be theoretically worth more because of the scarcity of it versus Ethereum is not a payment processor, although it can be. It's a blockchain that projects can build on top of. So it's a layer one, and then you can build layer two projects on top of it. So a layer 2 project would be a decentralized finance project. So, you know, let's say that Doug you wanted to create a new lending platform and you wanted it to be a peer-to-peer lending and you wanted to build it on top of the Ethereum blockchain, you could do that and, you know, you could use ether, which is the monetary unit of Ethereum to pay for, you know, different things that your new lending process provided. So you know, Doug, you want to lend Greg $100,000 for his new home, you can do that. And you can do you know all of the underwriting and everything yourself, or you can create this platform that could do it for you. And that would be more of a layer two on top of Ethereum's layer one. Ethereum is more project based, whereas Bitcoin is
1: more payment processing based. Okay. So just to to circle back, and I think the best analogy for Bitcoin, at least in the current how it's currently accepted is gold and and maybe you can say that I'm wrong there, but typically somebody from a store of value perspective, so I know that somebody at some point in the future is going to desire my my bar of gold, and so I'm going to hold a bar of gold because I think it's going to have value in the future because somebody's going to be willing to pay me hopefully more than I bought it for, but at least something for it in the future. Ethereum is more of like a an application that somebody may build another product off of so in your lending example i don't need to go to a lending manager or a bank i can lend somebody else money and and it's already built into the code that that person has to pay me back x amount over x period of time is that a good way to describe it yes That's perfect.
2: And then in the gold analogy, you know, I I would say, because I get this all the time, you know, what makes Bitcoin valuable? You know, it's two reasons, scarcity, and then it's always, you know, everything, nearly everything in the world is about what somebody else would value it at. So, you know, in your bar of gold analogy, or your ounce of gold, you know, somebody values that at, you know, $1,850 an ounce right now. And, you know there are industry use cases for that but you know i think gold the market cap of gold is somewhere around 15 trillion dollars right now the market cap of bitcoin is somewhere around 1 trillion dollars so you know the argument would be is gold you know from an industry standard is it worth 15 trillion you know being in jewelry and you know these industry use cases or is the majority of that value based in just what somebody else believes it's worth and mainly that would be
1: based on the history of gold's worth Doug mentioned the digital gold use case for Bitcoin over the last several years. And based upon what you were describing in terms of there being every three or four years, the supply of new Bitcoins being halved. So there's been an argument that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. And over the last year, or the last couple of years, inflation has increased. And and Bitcoin hasn't really increased alongside that. And so what do you think about the whole the secondary argument that people have made that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge and not just like a digital gold.
2: Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And, you know, over time, we have seen that. If you look at, you know, what one Bitcoin could buy you from an asset standpoint and not even from a dollar standpoint five years ago versus what it can buy you today, it certainly worked in that aspect. If you zoom out enough, it's right, certainly yeah. been an inflation hedge.
1: Yeah, it's been a great inflation hedge if you if you zoom out. Right. <laughs> Way right, above exactly. yeah. right. Yeah.
2: And I don't look at, you know, a 12 year history of Bitcoin. I think that that's foolish because it was a brand new asset class. But I do look at the last five to six years and look at what it's done over time. You know, it really became mainstream in 2017. And we saw a lot of people adopt it for this new inflation hedge. And it has worked. You know, now, you know, you can argue that it's a high beta NASDAQ play or tech stock play, but that's zooming in on a very small amount of time. Now, I don't think that, you know, over time, if it continues to track, you know, tech stocks that that you could make the argument, it does need to decouple, but, you know, zooming out over, you know, a five-year period, it's worked. It's done exactly what it was supposed to do.
1: Yeah. I think the issue in that particular argument is that if you just basically monitor activity of people from march of 2020 until maybe november of 2021 The basically the same people that were buying crypto were buying the the disruptive technology stocks were buying meme stocks etc it's the kathy wood crossover it's not the enthusiasts it's more of the speculators that were getting involved in that that particular asset class and i think the You don't hear as much about Bitcoin from that community anymore, but you don't hear about really much of anything now that that stocks in in that particular arena are off 80% and Bitcoin's been cut in half. But I do view this as, and and maybe you can talk further, because it's very difficult to think of Bitcoin as a potential hedge against really central bank policy or inflation from the perspective of US citizens. And so... Maybe we can just talk about this from look at somebody that's living in Argentina or somebody that's living in Venezuela or China or Ukraine or, or even Russia. How do you view Bitcoin from the perspective of an alternative currency, an alternative to authoritarianism outside of the maybe blinders that we have as, as Americans on?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I'm probably going to be. Uh, the wrong person to be, I'm going to be on like the complete opposite side of somebody that doesn't believe that, you know, it is a store value and a payment processor. But, you know, the people that I follow on on Twitter, which is where I get, I believe that, you know, Twitter is a, a great place for, you know, unfiltered news. And one of the articles that came out that I saw right after Russia invaded Ukraine was that this Ukrainian who is involved in cryptocurrency, also on the home, on a car, on a lot of assets in Ukraine fled in the middle of the night with the clothes on his back and you know a duffel bag you know everything he had was you know he could carry on his body and he also had a, a USB stick a hardware wallet a ledger with him and it wasn't much money but I think it was a lot to him I think it was 7 to 10,000 US dollars or the equivalent thereof and he made a comment that when he crossed the Ukrainian border his credit cards, debit cards—you know, nothing, nothing worked any longer. And the only thing that he had of value was this Bitcoin. And I think that that is, you know, in in countries that we can't understand. I mean, I can't, I certainly can't imagine living or you know, fleeing Ukraine and fleeing your home. Venezuela is another great example where you have hyper, true hyperinflation, You know, thousands of a percent in a year, where their currency was devalued. I think that it matters. Things like this matter far more to them than, you know, things like a bar of gold or, you know, stuff that might have meant more to our parents and our grandparents. Bitcoin, you know, it's what they view as as a store of value.
1: Right. Try fleeing a country with a duffel bag full of gold. It would probably, you right. probably wouldn't be able to do it from a physical standpoint. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about like the people that were you know, fleeing Eastern Europe and Germany during the 1940s were, and I was I was speaking to a client about this actually last week, and he asked me the question about, well, what do you think about investing in cryptocurrency? And I mentioned this particular story, and I think I had read the same article that you, that you're referencing, David. But basically, what he was mentioning is that people during the rise of Germany in the 1930s were fleeing Germany and Eastern Europe and sewing diamonds and gold into their jackets. Yeah. And essentially, if, so long as you can remember, I don't know how many digits or how many characters that you have to remember for your password for Bitcoin, but if, so long as you can remember that, you can take your assets anywhere. And I think that there's a use case that. no. the question is, how do you value it? And, and there's really no way to value it. I mean, you can say, what is gold worth? Well, gold has thousands of years of history and Bitcoin has 12 or 13. <laughs> there's going to be a maturation process that takes time. And so that's one difficult piece that I struggle with in this particular area. Another is a replacement. And I guess there has been competing replacements. You have tulips that were a replacement for gold at one point. But how do you think about you know putting all of your eggs in the Bitcoin basket and saying this is going to be the widely accepted store of value in this particular asset class, whereas something that maybe better comes along in the next couple of years or or decades? Yeah, no, that's a great question.
2: I think I'm going to answer that with kind of giving you the thesis of Crescent City Capital and and what we're ultimately trying to do. We don't single out anything in our trading style as, you know, the one perfect currency. I have personal beliefs that, you know, I'm certainly could be considered a Bitcoin maximalist, but our goal for Crescent City Capital is to accumulate as many Bitcoin as possible that doesn't mean that we are, you know, holding bitcoin. That just means that over time we want to we don't want to view our total portfolio or assets under management in terms of dollars, we want to do it in terms of bitcoin. But to give you an example, we held I think less than 15% bitcoin total in 2021. There's only two ways to accumulate bitcoin and that's through new dollars coming in or through trading. And so we recognize that We don't know that Bitcoin or Ethereum or Litecoin or Solana, whatever the new flavor of the month is, we recognize that we don't know if there will be a new and better currency. So therefore, you know, right now we believe that I believe that Bitcoin is perfect, but we trade around our, you know, always trading around our position. Second part of that is if if an investor doesn't have the time to trade, you know, a book of cryptocurrencies you know, I think that, you know, adding the top 10, you know, layer ones in an equally balanced portfolio of cryptocurrencies, you know, that equate to 5 to 10% of your total investable net worth. That's, I think, a, a great strategy as well. You know, I I don't see any of the top 10s going away. I certainly don't see Bitcoin going away unless there is, you know, this onset of, you know, some kind of one world central bank currency that could potentially replace it. But even then, it's not the same. You know, it's not disinflationary. It's going to have to be any central bank currency is going to have to be inflationary.
1: What do you see as future use cases of blockchain technology specifically? And we mentioned that in order for a miner to be rewarded with a Bitcoin, they essentially have to verify a transaction. I've heard of ideas behind the potential use for blockchain technology, like the fact that when you purchase a piece of real estate, you have to pay for titling fees, you have to pay for title insurance, and that theoretically you can have an entity or a blockchain that comes in and does the same exact thing for very little cost, essentially. What else have you seen and heard of outside of of that example from the standpoint of blockchain use cases? In December of last year, we
2: launched a early blockchain fund, you know, in Crescent City Capital we're trading blue chips. Uh, in Acacia Digital we are looking at pre-tokenization. So, you know, the companies that are looking to fund projects that would have the potential of tokenizing in the future and then Acacia could instantly monetize their investments sort of like a initial public offering. This would be an initial coin offering, an ICO. So I mentioned that to just let you know, we listen to three or four pitches a day. And I can tell you, like the smartest minds in the world are moving towards blockchain development. You know, we listen to guys that are X or current Facebook and Google employees, like I said, on nearly a daily basis. So the development from an intellectual standpoint is moving towards the blockchain. Now, in terms of what we're seeing. It's in every industry. You mentioned title insurance. I think that that's one of the lowest hanging fruits that there's just not anything out there right now. And I think it's because you know, it's so antiquated, the technology to get those titles in the digital world it's so antiquated right now that it's difficult to. It would even be even more difficult to put it on the blockchain. So, for instance, you know, if you need to go research title in New Orleans, you've got to go back, you know, two or three hundred years at the courthouse, and there's really no digital way to do that. Now, eventually, it will become all digitized, and what you're talking about would be a decentralized method that would be a public ledger, and you could have a utility token. So, you know, we've been talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum. This would just be another token, and I think right now there are just under ten thousand tokens and cryptocurrencies uh, in the world, but they all have—not all of them. Some of them are, you know, meme coins, but a large majority of them have actual utility. So, and it's okay, you know, it's sort of like uh, you know, Apple is different than Google. You know, you don't just have one stock for both of those companies. That's kind of how I see these tokens. But going back to your example, you know, you would have this utility token where it actually it traded value and the public markets decided what the value of that was. And I'm making a lot of the sub, but bear with me here, but one token would get you, you know, one search. So I think currently, you know, you're going to pay for title search 2,500 to $3,500, depending on what you're purchasing. So, and it'll take, you know, 30 to 45 days. Well, what if all of that was on this public ledger that was decentralized it was kept up by, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world. They were paid to keep this up through this utility token. And then it took you instead of 30 to 45 days, 30 to 45 minutes to do your title search on your home. And, you know, maybe it costs $50. That example can be used all across the board. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any industry that will be spared from, you know, being placed on the blockchain in the future. One other company that always sticks out. It was one of our earlier investments in, in Acacia. It's a company called Rare Mint. And a lot of people don't understand the, this NFT market, non fungible tokens. So the non fungible part is that like Bitcoin is fungible. So one Bitcoin is equal to one Bitcoin. An NFT that might be very similar to NFT can be viewed or can be priced differently than another NFT that, that, like I said, looks very similar. So this company called Rare Mint, they take rare collectibles, normally sports memorabilia let's say it's a Michael Jordan, you know, game seven Jersey that they actually own, they went out and purchased and they want, you know, it's a $3 million Jersey. They want to be able to sell this to the public and be able to give a chance for other investors to invest in this. Well, they take a picture of, you know, 3000 pictures of different parts of the Jersey and uh, someone's going to get, you know, part of the three, Someone's getting part of the two, someone's going to get part of the Nike symbol. And then, it's the same jersey but those are all going to be priced a little differently you know somebody's going to get all red on their uh, token whereas somebody's going to get the nike symbol which is going to be far more valuable and it gives these people a chance they can go and you know use their token to see the actual jersey they can go to the museum where it is they have a piece of this history just at a far less expensive price i know there's different ends of the spectrum
1: no no i think that that's helpful because i think that nfts have gotten a lot of press lately specifically around board apes and you know art and so i think actual utility whether it's collectibles or access to whether it's concerts or access to celebrities or songwriters or you know a piece of a song or something like that that you can then trade and there's value on the open market to then trade it to somebody else there's an actual use case there one other piece that we haven't touched on and i think this is unique from your perspective is, and it's been in the news lately, specifically has been stable coins. And so maybe explain to us what a stable coin is, and then the collateralized versus an arithmetic stable coin and the difference between the two. And then let's maybe lead that to the blow up that we've seen in the last few weeks and describe what happened there. So you're describing
2: uh, the blow up being Terra Luna. But at first, I'll go into so stablecoin is you know exactly as the name suggests, it's it's stable based on pegged to something. So in most cases, it's pegged to the dollar. So there's USDT, which is Tether. There's a company in the US called Circle that has a coin USDC, and both of those are pegged to the dollar, and they're supposed to be. In USDC case, it's audited, you know, at least on a monthly basis. Maybe it's it's even sooner than that. I'm not sure, but we know that the number of USDC that they meant, so these are actual tokens that are minted, those are backed by one US dollar. So if USDC gets an order for a million dollars in their bank account, they can immediately go and print a million USDC tokens. And so it's backed one for one, or it's supposed to be. There's been a lot of controversy just from a talk about the pegging standpoint to the dollar, and then we can go into Terra. Why would somebody invest
1: in a stable coin?
2: So there are some people who want to hold dollars in stable coins, and there's a number of different reasons. One of the biggest reasons is the yield that it provides. So in USDC case, a 12 month return just for holding these dollars in a bank account that you know you can see that are audited with, you know, dollar for dollar, I think the yield is like four and a half percent annualized. And you can do it monthly. You have to lock up your coins. So you can do it monthly. One month, six month, or 12 month, and you get a little bit better yield the further out you go. But a one month yield, you know, is still a little over 4%. And I think if you contrast that with a yield that you would get on a CD, you're going to get far better yield on that than you would a CD. And there's almost no volatility in, in something like this, or there's not supposed to be. Which brings us to, you know, kind of the Terra Luna fiasco. And as Doug mentioned, that was backed algorithmically. With mostly Bitcoin. So Terra Luna was an organization, is an organization that wanted to peg one US Terra to $1. And they would defend that peg algorithmically with Bitcoin. So let's say that the peg started losing value. So, you know, it's worth 0.997. They would go in, they would sell Bitcoin on the market, and then they would buy to defend the peg. Well, I don't really know all the nuances. I'm not going to be the best to comment on this. But what eventually happened is someone borrowed a bunch of Bitcoin, sold it on the open market, while also selling UST. So they owned about 100 million UST. And I want to say it was like 100,000 Bitcoin. So at the time, it was around... $4 $4 billion worth of Bitcoin. And so the ultimate goal was to not only collapse the price of UST, which I don't think that they lost much money on that. I think that they were able to buy that back at a maybe a 10 or 15% loss is what it looks like. But the ultimate goal was to collapse the price of Bitcoin because now Terra Luna had to go into the open market and sell hundreds of thousands of their Bitcoin to defend this peg. And so it put pressure on the price of Bitcoin. And eventually, they ran out of Bitcoin to defend the UST peg, and the peg went to zero. And, you know, the problem there is that, you know, these guys were investors were ultimately sacrificed their investment for very little reward, in my view. So in other words, you know, they let's say that in UST they were getting 10 to 12% and you know it looks great because they think that this peg will be defended and that you know the peg won't break and then the peg breaks they lose
1: 100% of their investment and you know their their risk reward profile is not great at that point yeah and there's probably even going into it a lack of knowledge that there wasn't collateral to back it up it was a it was an algorithm that there were arbitrageurs that were incentivized to keep the peg stable. But as soon as a tsunami of selling came in, that there was nothing really anybody could do. And then there was that sort of herd mentality that, you know, it's going down, let me get out before it goes down further. I think that's, um, you know, part of this whole maturation process of crypto is there's going to be events like that, whether it's meme coins, which you mentioned earlier, like Dogecoin or Shiba coin or whatever whatever the names are, all the way down to these sorts of, you know, high potential, but unseemingly low risk but ultimately high risk stable coins that are going to have to blow up for people to understand that you know there's no free lunch and really anything that's being done if something's offering you 4% and another thing's offering you 12% there's got to be a reason for that and there's horrible stories about what you know some people that were you know committing suicide because of what happened here with that collapsing of the stable that stable coin i want to commend you for really writing something a few weeks before this event actually occurred, or somebody on your team at least, just warning that this is a potential issue, that this is not the first time this has even happened in an algorithmic stablecoin. I think I said arithmetic stablecoin earlier. I meant algorithmic. But this is not the first time this has happened. This is the third or fourth event of these algorithms really getting blown up by people that are trying to take advantage of a destabilization event. This happens with other currencies as well, too, even like regular... Currencies outside of the cryptocurrency world with pegs, they break, right? Yeah. I mean, there was like the Thai bot fiasco in, uh, in the late 1990s. The Russian ruble crisis uh, wasn't a peg, but in the 90s as well. I mean, things, currencies in general get destabilized and de-pegged all the time. So it's it's not anything that's unique to crypto.
2: Yeah. You're, when I was trading at Gelber, Euro-Swiss peg, I don't know if you remember that, but it, they pegged it at a dollar at a, a Euro-20. And they would defend it by buying more euro. And they just eventually said, you know, enough is enough. We can't do this anymore. And the peg broke, you know, two of the biggest world currencies, you know, dropped or one of them dropped by
1: 20% overnight. The other one, you know, appreciated by, you know, more than that overnight. Right. So, I mean, this is just something that it's brand new, right? So in the context of financial markets, and so it's there's going to have to be some, you know, some battle scars that the crypto community goes through in order for this to get more mass adoption. I think it's if you look at at least the amount of coverage that crypto gets now compared to five years ago, it's insane. And I remember talking to a friend that wasn't a, a Bitcoin investor and has been for a decade now, but in 2017, I think Bitcoin hit two thousand dollars a coin in summer of twenty seventeen, and was starting to get coverage. And I'm saying, "What's your exit strategy here?" (laughs) And you have to be a complete believer in this particular asset class, or you take you know three to five, or maybe up to ten percent of your portfolio, and say, "Look, I'm going to allocate it to. I'm going to basically spray and pray in, in crypto, and hopefully one of these works out. And if I lose my money, it doesn't affect me long term. But if it works, it works in a big way."
2: Yeah completely agree. I mean, it's, you know, to the manipulation point, when you have an asset class that that hedge funds are interested in, institutions are interested in, those guys are not interested in, you know, they're not Bitcoin maximalists, they're dollar maximalists, and they want to make as much money as possible. And a $2 trillion asset class is extremely easy to manipulate. And I think that that's like the most important point is that, you know, the volatility until Bitcoin or, or the total, you know, asset class valuation reaches a point, you know, kind of the equivalent of gold or even silver, you're going to have massive manipulation, massive volatility. And, you know, I think that that scares a lot of people away, but, you know, with volatility comes opportunity. I think that's an important
1: point as well. So just to wrap this up, and we're not going to hold you to this, and, uh, and we're <laughs> also going to say that, this is not financial advice, but where do you see Bitcoin going from here and let's just put your hopes or targets for that particular cryptocurrency and we can save ethereum for another day and it's twenty nine thousand dollars today and then this is May twenty fourth
2: yeah I see because of how I'm viewing this as as kind of a high beta tech play, I think that you know the path that the Federal Reserve is on is going to continue to drive down stock prices and in turn, basically all assets, I think that kind of the max pain will be at the 20,000 mark. And then I see a continuation leading up to the next halving event where, you know, the stock to flow will half again. And, you know, ultimately by 2025,
1: I realistically see a $250,000 Bitcoin by that year. All right. We'll have you back on in 2025 and we'll be talking about a, a 10X from here then. Sounds great. All right, David. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for joining. And for anybody else that's listening, please like, share, subscribe. I appreciate you joining us on Lanyap. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.